We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Colossians. So if you will turn with me, we are going to be in chapter 3. We're going to look at the first half of chapter 3. Maybe you've heard of this old saying. It's sort of uh, said in a way that kind of looks down on someone. But have you ever heard of this, that, that someone can be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good? Ever heard, heard someone say that? Or, or maybe you've heard a parent say to their child or, or someone, your, your head is always in the clouds. I, I'm even told that there's a, there's a movie out on Netflix right now called Don't Look Up, right? This, what if they're all wrong? What if we should be looking up? What if the best way to live a good life, a moral life, what if the best way to live a just life is to look up? That's the big idea this morning. It's going to be on the screen behind me, I believe, and the big idea is simply this. The Christian life is about looking up by taking off and putting on. You're going to understand what I mean in just a second. So let me read the first few verses, which is all about looking up. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We'll we'll, we'll stop there. So you see there in verse 1, you've got this command to seek the things that are above. And then if you go to verse 2, you see a parallel truth or a parallel idea, you know, a different way of communicating the same thing. Not only are we called to seek the things above, but set our minds on the things above. Now, before we sort of get into what that looks like, what does it mean to seek the things above in contrast to seeking the things below or the things on earth? Paul does something wonderful He does something really lovely in these four verses. Paul commands us to seek the things above, to set our affections, our hearts, our lives on things above. But then he roots that command, that imperative, that calling, giving us three motivations for doing so. I just want to point them out to you. So Paul says, seek the things above first because of what is true of your past, because of what is true of your present, and because of what will be true of your future. So verse 1, Paul writes to these Christians that they have been, past tense, raised with Christ. Then verse 3, Paul writes that these Christians have lives that are present tense, hidden with Christ. Then if you look at verse 4, these Christians will one day, that's future tense, appear with Christ in glory. So so all of the Christian's life, their past, present, and future is with Christ. 
Right? It's sort of the idea of, and we talked about this, this is, this is one of the major themes in this book. It's the idea of our union with Christ, that our past, present, future are all united with Christ. Which is lovely, right? It's a glorious truth when you think about it. But, but when you really think about it, that we are united to Christ, I think in one sense, it's kind of intrusive. It's a lot of intimacy and it's a lot of closeness. Have you ever met those people who don't get like, you know, social bubbles and they just get really, really close and it's awkward. It's like, hey, give me my distance. Like this is my kingdom. Like don't, don't try to jump the wall, right? Just give me a little distance. You know, you know those people? Well, in one sense, when you think about union with Christ, it's a lot of closeness. It's a lot of intimacy. So, so let me try to picture it with an illustration, okay? T- today is the 70th anniversary of the Queen of England's rule. I don't know if you know this, but it's the anniversary of her seven. She's ruled for 70 years, okay? That's nuts. So just imagine for a moment um, a woman living in England. She's got a fine life. I mean, not a perfect life, but a good life where she's kind of kind of carved out a a home and life and she's, you know, she's got some plants and a garden and she's living her life. But then imagine one day the queen writes this woman a letter and says, I'm going to adopt you as my daughter. And she says, all of my riches, you know, all the riches in the coffers are yours. You're going to have a throne. You're going to have the royal, you know, signet ring on you. You will be my daughter with all of its accolades, with, with all of its privileges, with all of its blessings. You're going to get it all. Now, on one level, that's like a fairy tale, right? That would be amazing. But just think about it. Just think about what this woman would have to give up. I mean, she, she now needs to live in the palace. She's got to give up her clothing, right? Now she's got to dress properly. She's got to give up maybe her time, her rhythms, the things that she was thinking about daily. Now she's got other things that she needs to spend her time with. And so she wants closeness. She wants the queen to know who she is, but does she want that much closeness? I mean, maybe she would want the queen to like give her some relic or like a piece of paper so that when her friends came over, they're like, look what I have from the queen. Or maybe she'd like like a, a key to the kingdom, to Buckingham Palace, to say, I can drop in whenever I want, but I can still have my life. Or maybe she would just say, hey, in case I ever get into a financially um, hard situation, I would just like, you know, to, to be put on the payroll in some degree. Of, of course she'd want that, but... But the sort of closeness of being an adopted daughter of the queen, that's a lot of closeness. That's a lot to give up. She's now a princess. My guess is that sometimes we think of Christianity like this, right? We, we might believe in God. We might like God. Maybe we even love God. But, and we'll say, yeah, we're going to give you a lot of things, but there's just something in our lives, something in our hearts where we say, yeah, but you... You can't have that. There, there's some part of our lives that we want to carve out just for ourselves. And yet Paul would remind us 
as he talks about the past, present, and future union that Christ has with us, that that's not biblical Christianity. That there is a wonderful and yet, in one sense, offensive intimacy that happens when you are born again. You are that close with Christ. I mean, so close with, if you can think it this way, the spirit that dwelt in Jesus is the same spirit that indwells the Christian. There's not like a thousand or million spirits or even two spirits. There's one spirit. The same spirit that indwelt Christ is the same spirit that indwells the Christian. That's the sort of closeness we have. And it's almost hard to talk about. Like when you really think about this mystical union that, that we have with Christ, that all that Christ has, all of his riches, all of the privileges of Christ, he gives to us when we put our trust and faith in him, when we're unified and born again, it's almost hard to explain, explain isn't it? Uh, I think the, well, one of the closest uh, things we can get to this sort of imagery is the idea of marriage. The Anglican Church used to say uh, that they, they, they wrote these old uh, marriage vows, and basically they were said of the, the, the husband and the wife, they would say, all that I am and all that I have and all that I will be, I give to thee. In many ways, that's what Christ says to us in his life, death, and resurrection. All that I have, all that I am, and all that I will do, I give to thee. Now, it's sort of in light of this amazing union with Christ that we now come back to what I said we'd come back to, which is this command to set our lives, to set our hearts, to set our minds on things above in contrast to setting our minds on things below. So, so what does that look like? Or, or, or what does it mean? Or what is it? that we are to seek? Like, what is it in, in heaven? Or what's, what's the thing that we are to set our minds, hearts, and lives on? Well, Paul tells us, right? Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. That's the thing that's above. The, the thing that we're to set our minds to, the things that we're to set our affections on, is nothing short of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. So this command to seek the things above, to set our minds on things above, is nothing short of setting your minds, hearts, will, affection, lives, attuning the totality of ourselves on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think it's interesting. Like when you think of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is, is, is wonderful. And one of the things that was one of the blessings of being the Old Testament people of God was that God kept interrupting the lives of God's people in the Old Testament, right? God would, would put these divine calendar appointments with him constantly, right? So we had the Sabbath weekly. We had Passover yearly. We had all these festivals. And, and why did God put all these festivals and Passover and, and going to the temple and the tabernacle in order to make sacrifices yearly and, and seasonally. Why all of these, you know, outlook messages on the pilgrim's calendar? Well, it was to remind God's people yearly, monthly, seasonally, weekly, daily of who God is and what God's done. 
Like that, that was the point of all these, right? All of them were symbolic and purposed to remind God's people of who they were. They were divine reminders of a divine truth of who God is and what God had done for them. Well, I think we too need rhythms in our lives in order to remind ourselves who Christ is. I I think we need rhythms in our lives to practice such that we can seek the things above. I I think there's, you you know, many of these things, right? We need things like Bible memorization, right? Right? Uh, I'm getting on a plane today, and I think often of, when I get on a plane, of Psalm 23. I like being in control, right? When you get on a plane, you're like, I'm not in control at all. (laughs) Studying God's word, having a quiet time, prayer, small groups. We could list all these sorts of things that are all very, very helpful to just rhythmically put in our lives, to structure our lives around so that we are reminded daily and weekly, oh yeah, this is who God is. This is what God's done. We, we, we all need these sorts of things in order to fight our spiritual amnesia. But let me just give you one more. Let me give you one more maybe practical way of orienting our lives to such a degree that we are seeking the things above in contrast to the things below. Like what does that look like? Do you guys remember the, uh, the story of Jesus meeting the rich young ruler? It's a famous story. So, so Jesus meets this guy, and, and this young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and says, go and sell everything you have. And the young ruler goes away very, very sad and grieved. He was a very wealthy man. Now, it's, it's, it's one thing to just kind of look at that story and think, I mean, that rich young ruler, how, how dare he, right? We, we can look down on him, but, but in many ways, we're all the rich young ruler, aren't we? Right? we? We all have our Amazon dreams, right? One click and you can get whatever you want. I mean, we, we are wealthy beyond imagination. We're all the rich young ruler. And so I think a helpful posture posture for the Christian is to constantly have our, have our hands open to not just the things we have, but our comforts, our time, and to say, oh, I'm willing to give up my time, give up my possessions at times, give up my, my services, maybe my skills, to give up some level of comfort and to do so so that I can remind myself that at the end of the day, those things are fleeting. But there's something greater, a greater treasure, that's Christ. So, we have this command here in verse 1 and 2 to, to set our minds on the things uh, below, to kind of structure our lives so that instead of our minds going to a Rolodex of the various things we have to do, instead, we are so enamored with Christ, we're so thinking about Christ in our daily and weekly rhythms that we respond better. Paul's not saying, oh, don't be worried about, don't, don't work, don't, don't worry about all those things. No, he's saying, 
that as you attune your hearts and minds to Christ, you're going to react to the various things you have to do in the week with more patience and gentleness. You are going to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in greater degrees. So, you want to live the good life? Seek the things above. But then Paul goes on. Turn with me to verse 5. Paul goes on to write, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven, you also must forgive. And above these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We'll stop there. So in this section, you'll notice that Paul lists two categories of vices. Two two categories and lists of vices. Sins. We see the first in verse 5, and this is sort of a grab bag, a whole kind of catalog of words used to describe sexual sin. And then if you look at verse 8 and 9, you have a list of, again, a, a sort of a grab bag of various Greek words to describe what, what we'll just call sins of the tongue, or maybe speech sins, word sins. So there, if you go to verse 5, you've got words like impurity, passion, evil desire, coveting. And so these are different words to describe different ways in which our sexuality has just gone astray. And the same thing is true with the second list, right? All of these, starting in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk and lying... Paul is just kind of using different words to describe the various ways in which our words can go off the rails. Right? Our words are powerful to encourage someone, right? Words have power, but, but we also know that our words can be some of the most destructive things that we can do to someone. Now, why does Paul have these two lists, right? It's interesting, like, you've got sexual sins and word sins. Like, why does Paul kind of use those two categories of sins? Well, it's not because Paul doesn't care about other sin, right? Just read the New Testament, read Paul's other letters. Like, Paul obviously cares about other sins. So that's not the reason. Now, it could be that, that this church, the, the church in Colossae, was really struggling with these two sins, and so Paul is addressing a pastoral concern and pointing these two sins out and saying, hey, hey, let, let's talk about it. That, that could be what's going on. I think there's a simpler answer. A simpler answer. Can you imagine 
two categories of sin that are less common to humanity? I mean, those two categories of sins, sins of our words, our speech, lying, deceiving, slander, gossip, and words of the mind, sexual sins of various kinds. I mean, how common are they in every culture at every time? I think what's going on here is Paul is generalizing sin to hit us all. So, so, so what we're not supposed to do is look at these lists and go, oh, and think of other people and go, ooh, I'm hope, hopefully this person's listening, right? They love to tell those white lies. I don't think that's what we're meant to do. I think all of us are in these categories of sin. We all, in various ways, struggle with sins with our words, Sins with our eyes. I mean, has not the internet just kind of just made this even more difficult? So Paul here, he doesn't kind of sugarcoat the human heart. He basically says, all of us struggle with these sins. And then we read, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, sin in all of its forms deserves judgment, deserves wrath. Now, that might sound intense. It might sound harsh, but just think about it, right? Just think about the societal wrath and judgment coming on, on uh, Weinstein right now for his sexual sin, right? Our society is justified to judge a man for his perverse sexual sin. That's what sin deserves. What's more difficult, it's easy to just say he deserves it. What's, I think a lot harder is to say that our sin deserves judgment too. And so Paul tells us in light of this, well, what are we supposed to do with our sin? As Christians, what should we do with our sins? And so here Paul gives us two sort of metaphors or two evocative images in order to help us make sense of how we relate to our sin. Look at the first one. We see it back in verse 5. Paul writes that we are to put to death. And then we've got our lists of sins. So, so when biblical authors talk about authentic Christianity, right? They don't talk about, okay, authentic Christians are those who are good and then they become better, right? Christianity is all about making good people gooder. That's not exactly how the Bible kind of talks about authentic Christianity. You know, the the imagery is not like recycling, like God's not an Oregonian in that sense, right? It's not saying, oh, I'm going to take some good things and make it into something else. That's not the biblical imagery about authentic Christianity, When you think of John 3, Ezekiel 37, the imagery really is death to life. That's what authentic Christianity is all about. It's taking dead people, dead people in their sins and making them alive to Christ. And so Paul here is saying, okay, that's happened. We saw that in verses 2, 3, and 4, right? You have been buried with Christ. You are dead. Your sins are not counted against you now. In light of that, take your sin and bury it with Christ. Put them to death. That's the first image. Now, the second image is a little bit uh, technical, so kind of stay with me. But, but, but the second imagery is the sort of idea of clothing, all right? Now, I hate clothing, so I had to work through this, okay? 
And so the, the, the whole idea is taking off clothing and putting on clothing, right? Taking off the old man, the old self, and putting on the new man. Now, we, we, we read sort of the text this morning, Phil did, the, the, the whole text that, this, uh, that Colossians is alluding to, and it's Genesis chapter 3. So God sets Adam and Eve in a garden, and it's paradise. And they sin, they decide, nope, God, you don't know what's best, I know what's best, I want to rule my life, and so they sin. And then they're awakened to the reality that they're naked, which is kind of symbolically representative of the, the, the shame and get guilt that they're experiencing because of their sin. So they're naked, and so they grab, you know, they, they grab a fir tree and some twigs, and they try to do their best to cover their sins, right? This is the natural implications of what we do in light of our sin, right? We do whatever we can with moral behavior, with ethics, to cover our sin and shame. It's natural, we see this in kids all the time, right? That they fail, they sin, and what do they do? They try to make up for their sin by covering it in various behaviors. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And then God shows up and basically says, who told you you're naked? And what we didn't read if we kept on going is that then what God does is he actually provides clothing for them. He clothes them. You see, all sin deserves punishment. And in light of sin, there's always sacrifice that's necessary. Have you ever wondered why, when you read the Old Testament, why is sacrifice the response to sin? Well, it begins in chapter 3 of Genesis. God's people sin, and God makes the first sacrifice. An animal is sacrificed, and clothing is made for them. And so that's the image that Paul is using. The whole idea of taking off the old man, the old clothing, and putting on the new clothing. The, the idea is that, that we need to take off Adam. That's the old clothes. We were born into Adam, but through faith in Christ and Jesus, through regeneration, if you are truly a Christian, you're no longer in Adam. You're in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So put on Christ. That's basically what then we keep on reading. That's the point of all this, which is you are to take off the old self, take off Adam and put on Christ. That's how, that's not the only way, but it is a primary way and an important way that we seek the things above. It's by taking off the old man and putting on the new man, that is putting on Christ. Just, just, just look there in verse 12. Paul continues to kind of flesh this out. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And then what binds all this together? Put on love. Now, do those virtues sound familiar? Well, they should. Because in many ways, these are all the virtues that are manifested and described in the Gospels, at Philippians 2, as it relates to Jesus Christ. These are his, his characteristics, these virtues. And so Paul's saying, put on Christ. Put on the nature and work of Jesus Christ. You've been united to him, now live like him. 
And I think this is one of the most exceedingly practical things. This might sound for a moment sort of abstract. What does it mean to take off Adam and put on Christ? But I think this is one of the most exceedingly practical things in the New Testament about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Religion basically says, stop doing bad things and do good things. Or you fight not doing bad things by just stop doing them. But biblical Christianity is more complicated than that. Or not more complicated, it's wonderfully more simple. It says, actually, what you should do is, you should put on virtue in order to fight vice. So so if you're struggling with lust, well, well, put on chastity. Or or if you're, you're struggling with greed, put on generosity. Or if you're struggling with anger, Put on love. If you're struggling with impatience, put on contentment. Focus on the virtue. Put on Christ. I'll give you one example, and I'm the butt of this story. So uh, a few months ago, I signed my son up to play basketball. And when you sign up, there's this little box that says, basically, if we can't find a coach for your team, you will be the coach. And let me just tell you, don't click the box. I clicked the box. And you are now looking at the coach of a co-ed second grade basketball team named the Firecrackers. Now, these kids... Now, I, we've had kind of two practices, two games. These kids, they want to have fun. Not me. <laughs> I don't care about fun. I care about winning. I had forgotten how truly competitive I am. I mean, in yesterday's game, I mean, we were tied with about three minutes to go. And I looked at the other coach and I was like, we need to think through how to get the right kids on the floor in order to win the game. I'm very, very competitive. The kids just want to have fun. I want victory. Well, there is a healthy form of competition, okay? Being competitive is fine. But I don't think it's helpful if if you were to come and say, Stephen, you just need to stop being competitive, right? I would say, That's like telling me to stop breathing. That's just kind of who I am. So I think that's just dead religion. Stop being competitive. And how competitiveness kind of manifests in my life, the sort of dark side of it, it's just a form of pride. Like, I want the validation of winning the trophy. There's a trophy. I want the trophy. I want to see the smile on my kids, the trophy. Like, I want the parents to say, look at how good Stephen's doing. I want to exhaust the kids. I want to tear them down so I can build them up, right? That's what I want. Okay. It's all about me, isn't it? So how do I fight that sort of pride? Well, I don't fight it by just saying, stop being proud. C.S. Lewis talked about humility this way. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm just so terrible. I'm just the the worst person. That's not humility. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. So, So how do I fight competitive pride as I'm the coach of the firecrackers and we're one and oh right now? We'll probably not share that. That's probably one thing I could do. 
But two, I need to put on humility. And how do I do that? Well, I think more about the kids than I do about me. I think more about what they need, uh, about what it looks like for them to succeed, and I focus my attention more on them. And if we win or we not. Or maybe I put myself in a position to practice the spiritual gift of losing. It's a, like to golf, maybe. Anyone who golfs knows that you golf in order to teach yourself humility. So it's not enough just to say, I'm going to fight vice by just focusing on vice. Paul tells us, no, take off, slay, like name the sin and slay the sin. But then having done that, put on Christ. Focus your attention, not just on the vice, put Focus your attention on the virtue. Put on that Christ-like attribute that you're struggling with its opposite. Now, if that's not practical enough, Paul then gets even more practical. He then ends with four illustrations of what it looks like to seek the things above. Right? You're, you're going to see them starting in verse 15. I'll, I'll, I'll read them, see if you can point them out. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, If we're to seek the things above, we do so by putting off and putting on and by prioritizing four realities. The peace of Christ, see that in verse 15. The gratitude of Christ, we see that also in verse 15. The word of Christ there, verse 16. And the reputation of Christ, verse 17. This is how we put on Christ. We let the peace of Christ rule in our lives. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean? Sometimes we think of, oh, the peace of Christ. It's that, that feeling that like, I'm going to make a decision and then I just have peace and so I made it. That's not what's going on here, right? The, the, the idea is that, that, Christ's peace, um, that Christ is the umpire in our lives and in the church. So, so who calls balls from strikes? Like who, who calls the shots? Who rules and reigns? Who, who has authority in the church ultimately? Not this guy. Not even us. Fundamentally, most supremely, Christ is the umpire. His word calls right from wrong, virtue from vice. Because there's so much that divides us these days. I mean, just look at verse 11. We we think that there's a lot of things that divide us these days. Well, here, look, look at the realities that were dividing the early church. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Greek, Jew. You got class, ethnicity, social standing, all of them divide. And he says, basically, if you want to be a united church, or I'll put it this way, find me the most united church and I'll find you a church that is most preoccupied with Christ. He goes on to say, right, but Christ is all and in all. If we want to be a united church, fundamentally that happens as we unite 
our attentions, our hearts, our minds, our lives, as we seek the things above, we are so heavenly-minded that we are earthly good to each other. And then notice in verse 16 and 17, we have another way of seeking the things above. And I'm going to just stop because I never get to talk about this, so I'm going to talk about it. Did you see one of the ways we let the, the word of God dwell richly in us? Singing. Singing. Which I know is difficult, all right? I think especially in our culture, it's difficult. Like, it's awkward to sing. It's painful to sometimes sing together. It's embarrassing. When I was in sixth grade, I was, you don't try out, but I was on the choir, all right? And I'll never forget, right before our, our uh, recital, my choir teacher pulled me aside and asked me politely if I would lip sing during the choir performance. I'm not making this up. And here's the funny thing is, I, she was a really good teacher, and I think she was probably wise to ask me to do this. I yelled really hard in reaction to that. Now, things honestly didn't get better for me. In college, one night, my roommate and I, and it was too light, late, and we, you know, that dumb stuff happens when you get a bunch of guys living together at night. And so one of my roommates dared me to take a singing class in college. And so I did. And so I learned something on the first day of class that I'm what people technically call tone deaf, which for layman's mean that it sounds really good when I'm singing in the shower to me. Like in my head, I sound amazing. But to you all, it's like nails on a chalkboard. So I understand this, the, the pain and the embarrassment and the fear that comes with singing. But just look at the text. One of the ways that we are to put on Christ, one of the ways that we, we, we fill our minds and hearts and affections with Christ is by singing about Christ. It's one of the most practical things we can do to seek the things above is to sing. Because isn't that the power of song, right? Songs can do things that almost nothing, no other genre can do, right? Songs can put words to emotions you never knew you had. Right? Songs can make tears flow from your eyes. Songs can make a sad man dance. Songs can make a happy woman lament. Songs have that power. And they also have that power to bind, right? Right? My friend was showing me uh, this. He went to a Neil Diamond concert. And when, you know, Sweet Caroline came on, literally the entire just you know, thousands of people are just screaming it as they should, right? Right, so it has a a way of binding us together. That's the power of music, isn't it? You see, theology, right, the study of God should or ought to or must naturally lead to doxology. As we study God, as we think about God, as we're enamored with God, as we think of the high and lofty nature and character of God, that should naturally flow into the praise of God. And so he says, as you seek the things above, let Christ's word dwell in you by singing. Now, I know it's uncomfortable sometimes, but what a better, more practical way 
to set our hearts on Christ than to sing about him. We, we also do this by, you know, prioritizing the word of God and studying the word of God. And then in verse 17, by fighting for the reputation of Christ, right? In all that we do, we, sh- we should be thinking about, does this honor Christ? Am I a good witness for Christ? But sort of let this be abstract. Let me just, and we're going to be done. Let me give us one more illustration of what this whole looks, what this looks like. All right, just think of a bird for a moment. When does a bird sing loudest? I do some research. Evidently, a bird sings loudest when the sun rises and they are warmed by the power of its rays. That's why birds are annoying in the morning, right? I think the same is true for the Christian. When we are warmed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are attuned to the mercy of Christ, when we're meditating on the forgiveness of Christ, when we're experiencing the life giving presence of Christ, we will, like a bird, sing loudest about Christ. To the extent that we seek the things above is the extent to which we live transformed into the likeness of Christ. So look up. That's the call. Look up. Look up. Be Heavenly minded, and I promise you this, you will never, ever be no earthly good. Those who are the most earthly good are always those who are most filled with heaven. Lord, we, we, are, so, we, we are so thankful for the, all that you're doing in our lives. But God, we, we want to be more faithful in how we fill our lives, our hearts, our minds with you. We we want rhythms that remind us of who you are, what you've done for us, such that we can live lives that, that are attuned to your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to take off, take off the old man, take, take off our sin and help us to put on Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.